Well, welcome back to our New Testament survey. We are working our way through the books of the New Testament, more or less one book at a time, uh, although this evening, if possible, we might make it through both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, but we will start with 1st Thessalonians and see how we do on time. Uh, so we are uh, working our way through these epistles right now, this section of the New Testament, uh, primarily consisting of Paul's epistles. Again, an epistle is a letter uh, sent to a church or an individual, a group of people, but uh, that the author anticipates will be read more broadly than simply uh, to the primary audience is it addressed to. Uh, obviously, the Holy Spirit has seen fit to preserve these for us, so uh, not only were they read more broadly at the time of the writing, but they have continued to be read for the last 2,000 years of church history and to serve Christ's church throughout the world. As we look at uh, the letter of 1 Thessalonians along with 2 Thessalonians, uh, they were written by Paul. Uh, we can see right here in, in chapter 1, verse 1, uh, in the greeting that Paul addresses the letter, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Uh, so those are the three that are there, uh, Timothy and Silvanus, uh, possibly Silas, um, may have been serving as Paul's secretaries uh, to actually write the letters down as Paul dictated them to him. Um, so if we think about uh, Thessalon Thessalon Thessalonica, well, where the Thessalonians are, uh, we might remember uh, Acts chapter 17 when Paul visited uh, Thessalonica during his second missionary journey. Uh, as Paul is uh, traveling preaching Christ throughout uh, the different regions of the Roman Empire. It says in Acts chapter 17, verse 1, Now when they had passed through Amphilos and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. So you can see as Paul comes into Thessalonica, he goes to the Jewish synagogue where the, the Jews would gather to worship, but there are a number of Greek uh, people, Gentiles, there who are interested in the Jewish religion and are attending the synagogue. Uh, they may be uh, proselytes who have converted to Judaism. They may be Gentiles who are simply known as God-fearers who are interested but haven't actually taken that step of circumcision and, and keeping the various Jewish ceremonies. But uh, Paul preaches to them from the scriptures, reasoning from the Old Testament about the Christ. And so the Christ is the Messiah of the Old Testament and showing them that the Christ had to suffer and to be resurrected from the dead. And he's proving this to them from the Old Testament. And then he tells them that Jesus, who he is preaching to them, is the Christ, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And so there's a church uh, that comes into being as some of the Jews and many of the Gentiles believe on Jesus. And so there's a church uh, that springs into being there in Thessalonica. But unfortunately, Paul is not able to stay there uh, long term. Some of the Jews who were not persuaded, we're told in verse 5, became envious uh, of the attention that Paul was getting, uh, envious of 
those who were now believing on Christ and, and not following their teaching anymore. And so they stir up a mob against Paul uh, and Silas and their teaching. And so they had to leave Thessalonica and flee to Berea. And of course, some of those Jews even followed them uh, later to Berea and caused problems there as well. So Paul wasn't in Thessalonica very long. Well, as he continues his journeys, he goes to Berea, he goes to Athens, uh, and then eventually he ends up in Corinth. And so it is likely that he wrote uh, both of these letters to the Thessalonians from Corinth while he was there. Uh, He was concerned about them, about the Jews that had stirred up the trouble, uh, about the persecution that the new Christian church there in Thessalonica might be enduring. And so sometime in late 50 or early 51 AD, Paul writes a letter uh, to the church in Thessalonica. And then likely, if we get to 2 Thessalonians, we'll see that he likely followed that letter with a second letter within a a couple of months uh, because there were some misunderstandings even that arose from the first letter. Uh, So why, why did he write this letter? Just because he wasn't there long and he misses them, he's concerned for them? Not entirely. Uh, He has heard that the unbelieving Jews that are there in Thessalonica have been disparaging Paul and his ministry and that they are persecuting uh, the the Christian church in Thessalonica. So he's writing uh, to encourage them to instruct this young church and encourage them to endure uh, trial and persecution uh, and to stay steadfast in the faith. Uh, So that's his occasion and his purpose for writing the letter. But uh, we'll see that the major overarching theme of the letter has to do with the day of the Lord. And so if we think about the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, uh, there's a lot written there about the day of the Lord uh, in Joel and Amos and Zechariah and different places uh, where the prophets spoke about this future day on which God would judge the nations. Uh, that he would come in righteousness and judge with equity, uh, vindicate his people. Uh, And so uh, Paul is teaching them uh, that enduring trials and persecution uh, with a hope of the coming day of the Lord, which he equates with the return of Christ. And so we'll see that as we work through. Uh, Chapter 1 These are short chapters. Chapter 1 consists of the greeting and his prayer of thanksgiving, which will also begin to lead into his theme. Uh, Chapters 2 and 3 are kind of, I'm going to combine those together, uh, and they are concerned with the gospel uh, taking root in Thessalonica and then uh, the fruit of the gospel there. And then chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, uh, would be Paul's instructions for them to live in a way that is pleasing to God. And then from chapter 4, verse 13, uh, through nearly the end of the letter, uh, would be instructions about living our lives in light of the resurrection of Christ and his coming return. Uh, so uh, as we look at the letter uh, in the, here in the beginning, we notice right outside the, the, the greeting in verse 1 that Paul begins his, his customary prayer of thanksgiving for the church. And he says in verse 2, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. So uh, we see that combination of words that we've seen before, faith, hope, and love, Uh, that are very important in the apostles' thinking, Uh, the faith in Christ, our hope in 
uh, his return, our hope in glorification and the resurrection uh, and the love for the saints. And so these things are three themes that reoccur in many of Paul's letters. He says in verse 4 that he knows that these believers in Thessalonica are elected by God to salvation. Uh, And so he's giving them an assurance that if you are elected by God to salvation, then in spite of what persecution may be coming against you, you have an assurance that you are saved and that this is God's will uh, that you endure this. In verse 5, he then says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. So the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ was preached to them, uh, not just in word, but in power. And and if we think back to Romans chapter 1, what does Paul say about the gospel? It is the power of God unto salvation to all those who believe. Uh, So this is that same idea that it wasn't just a word that was spoken, but that word had power to save them. And so they they truly are the elect of God. Uh, They are among his church. And so uh, if the Jews are persecuting them, uh, they should endure this persecution uh, with hope because they have been elected by God. It goes on to tell them that they should imitate uh, the apostles and Christ uh, in the way they conduct their lives and with joy uh, in the midst of trials. Uh, He says in verse 6, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, So even though they're afflicted and persecuted, they have joy in the Holy Spirit uh, as they follow the example of Paul and of Christ himself. Uh, And he says that they're they're doing that well, so much so that they've become an example to others uh, in the entire region. Uh, And so the the faith is spreading because of their suffering uh, for the sake of Christ. And then in verse 9, Paul says, Uh, talking about uh, this suffering that they've endured and how the word of the Lord has spread. Um, He says, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So he's speaking to the Gentiles in the church who turned from their idols uh, to serve the living and true God. And, and right there he's using language that comes from Jeremiah chapter 10 where Jeremiah is speaking about the false gods of the nations uh, that are contrasted with uh, Yahweh, with the God of Israel. Uh, the false gods, the idols, are lifeless. They're wood, they're stone, they're, they're metal. They have to pick them up and carry them around. They're, they're lifeless, in, inanimate objects. But God is the living and true God. And so Paul says they have turned from their false gods to serve the living and true God and, and that they are waiting for Christ's return from heaven, uh, waiting for the Son from heaven whom he has raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. So here we're starting to get into the theme of the letter, uh, which is the return of Christ. And he prefaces this with uh, the resurrection of Christ, that Christ raised from the dead, and that is the first fruits of the resurrection. And he's going to talk later in the letter about our resurrection. Uh, But Christ is the first fruit of the resurrections who delivers us from judgment 
on the day of the Lord. That's a reference there from the wrath to come as a reference to the day of the Lord. So as he moves into chapters 2 and and 3, he is uh, defending his ministry uh, in the face of some of the things that are being said. But he's uh, speaking about uh, the testimony of the gospel in Thessalonica, that they have the testimony of what occurred among them when the gospel was preached to them. Uh, They know, he says in chapter 2, verse 1, for you yourselves know, brethren, that at our coming to you, that our coming to you was not in vain. Uh, They are aware that what Paul preached to them actually produced fruit. It produced results. And so Paul says in verse 3, for our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. So uh, Paul preached uh, the gospel to them, and, it, and he didn't do so uh, deceitfully. He wasn't looking out for uh, himself. He wasn't seeking uh, his own good. He wasn't seeking to please men, he says in verse 4, but to please God. Uh, he, his ministry, the character of his ministry speaks for itself. It was godly in uh, opposition to the false teachers who are seeking their own. Uh, He says in verse 5 that he wasn't flattering his listeners, that he wasn't seeking to enrich himself off of them, but rather uh, to serve them. Uh, He says again in verse 6, Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. So he's making this point that his ministry speaks for itself. He wasn't seeking his own, uh, edit, his own glory. He wasn't seeking his own enrichment in preaching the gospel to them. He was serving uh, them, serving Christ, and uh, not uh, just seeking his own, uh, his own glory and his own enrichment off of this. Uh, And he says in verse 8 that not only did he give them the gospel, he gave them himself. He gave them his own life. He says, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. So so Paul gave them not only uh, just a message, but he invested his life in them. Uh, He sacrificed of himself for them because uh, he was affectionate for them as dear brethren in Christ. And so he says in verse 10 that they know the truth of this. Uh, They know from his character, from his conduct among them, they know the truth uh, of Paul's ministry. And so even if these Jews uh, who oppose the gospel might say things about the Apostle Paul. He says, you, you know, you have the testimony uh, of my conduct and my ministry among you, uh, and you can believe that because it's true. He said in verse 7 uh, that he was gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. And then uh, in verse 11, he compares himself to a father who exhorted, comforted, and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. So he's showing them what kind of affection he has for them, like a parent uh, with his young children, uh, gently loving them, exhorting them, comforting them, instructing them in the faith. And he says in verse 12 that he did all of this for their good, that they would walk worthy of God uh, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So this was not for his own sake, but it was for them uh, that he did this. In verse 13, his, his prayer of thanksgiving continues. He says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, 
Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So uh, he's thankful to God that when they heard the gospel, they responded to it in faith and they received it as the truth. And so then he says in verse 14 that they're suffering now at the hands of their own countrymen, just as the Jewish believers in Jerusalem and Judea suffered from their own countrymen. Uh, And so this is not unusual that they're experiencing this, and so they should be encouraged by that. In in verses 15 and 16, he says some pretty hard things uh, about the Jews. He says, Uh, that they killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Now that that next to last phrase there in verse 16, to fill up the measure of their sins, might uh, call to mind uh, something that we read just recently uh, in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 15, verse 16, when he talked about uh, the Canaanites, uh, how their iniquity was not yet complete, and so uh, they're given a period of time to fill up their sins before God judges them uh, and gives that land to the nation of Israel. Uh, And so here he says the Jews uh, have generationally, for many generations, have persecuted the prophets, they've persecuted Christ, now they're persecuting the church, and they have filled up their sins, and now they are experiencing the judgment of God. And that judgment is, the gospel is going to the nations without them. Uh, The nation of Israel was supposed to be uh, God's kingdom of priests that would mediate the gospel and the good news of the Messiah to the whole world, and they've rejected it. Uh, There are Obviously, some like Paul and Peter and others who are Jews who are involved in this, but the nation as a whole had rejected Christ, and so they have lost out on the privilege of being uh, that nation of priests that would spread the good news of the kingdom to the nations. Uh, In Daniel chapter 8, Daniel talks about the same thing, uh, talks about when when transgressors have reached their fullness, Uh, that then judgment would come. And so there's a national pattern of sin uh, in persecuting the faithful remnant among Israel and now uh, the faithful church of Christ. And so Paul says their judgment uh, has come upon them. In verses 17 through 19, uh, he then expresses a longing to see the believers there in Thessalonica uh, and and that he is joyful uh, in their salvation, uh, that he longs to see them, uh, but he is filled with hope and with joy uh, that they have been saved, uh, partly through uh, his own ministry. And so he says, you are our glory and joy in verse 20. Uh, So he's expressing this affection for them. In chapter 3 then, uh, he tells them that he sent Timothy uh, because he could not go himself and he really wanted to know how they were doing, how they were enduring uh, the afflictions and the persecution that had come upon them. And so uh, verses 1 through 5, he speaks about that and about why he had sent Timothy to them. And then in verse 6, he says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. So, Timothy has come back. He's given Paul a report that they have 
maintained their faith in the face of this persecution, that they continue to love uh, not only uh, the local body, but they, they love the apostle, that they're affectionate, longing to see him just as he longs to see them. He then says in verse 7, Therefore, brethren, in all our afflictions and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. Uh, so it's comforted Paul in his own afflictions uh, to know that his work was not in vain, uh, that the, the believers have stood fast in Christ, they have endured uh, the suffering and the persecution, uh, and they continue in the faith. In verse 11, Paul then says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. So he's continuing his prayer for the church, and he's asking uh, that the Lord would allow him to visit them. This is what he wants. In verse 12, he prays that uh, their love would increase for one another, uh, that they would continue to increase and abound in their love for one another. And then in verse 13, he prays and says, So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And so here he's using language from Zechariah chapter 14 verse 5 uh, where Zechariah speaks about the day of the Lord and about the Lord coming to his people uh, and coming with all of the saints. And so what Paul is doing is taking that language of the Old Testament day of the Lord and referring it to Christ that Christ is God, Christ is the Lord. And so when Christ returns, that is uh, the day of the Lord that is coming. It will be a day of judgment for the nations, a day of vindication uh, for God's people. So then in uh, chapter 4, Paul begins to tell them how they ought to live in order to be pleasing to the Lord. And this is really uh, an outworking of verse 13. He said in verse 13 that that he was praying that God would establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. So he's talking about their sanctification, that that when Christ returns, they would be found faithful, that they would have grown in their sanctification, uh, blameless and holy before the Lord, which, of course, in his letter to the Uh, church in Ephesus. He had said that that is what Christ does to his church. He sanctifies it so that he can present it to himself blameless uh, at his coming. And so uh, chapter four, he's going to work out what does that look like for them to be sanctified. Uh, And so if we think about uh, the Old Testament uh, tabernacle or the Old Testament temple, uh, it had to be cleansed and sanctified as holy unto God. And so the New Testament church is now the tabernacle or the temple in which God dwells, and so the church should be sanctified as well. So in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, Paul uh, tells them that he's only reminding them. He's not telling them anything new that they haven't heard. He's reminding them of what he has already told them. And then he says in verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So it's God's will that his people be sanctified, that they become holy and learn to live holy lives. And so this sanctification uh, takes three, uh, he addresses it in three different areas in particular. And the first one uh, is to abstain from sexual immorality. Uh, And so you think about this, he's writing this to Gentiles who have come out of idolatrous practices. Uh, Many of those Uh, idolatrous religions that they practice in the Greco-Roman world involve temple prostitution and all sorts of other uh, 
sexually impure uh, activities, homosexuality and different things. And so that is what they grew up with. That's what they knew. That's what their world embraced. And now they have become Christians. And so Paul says they have to abstain uh, from that former life that they lived. And so uh, they need to know uh, how to live their lives in sexual purity uh, in a way that honors God. And so verses 3 through 8 really address that subject of uh, abstaining from sexual immorality uh, and living a life of purity. Uh, Then in verses 9 and 10, uh, he addresses the second issue of their sanctification, which is concerning brotherly love. And he says they're doing a great job of this. I don't really need to write to you about this. Uh, You're doing a great job of loving one another, uh, but I want you to increase in in loving uh, each other, continue to do that. Uh, But he says that they're loving not only themselves, but the saints throughout the entire region. Uh, And so they're a testimony, as he said earlier, they're a witness uh, to the world in this regard. But he wants them to increase more and more in their love uh, for one another. Then in verses 11 and 12, uh, he addresses this idea of living a quiet life. And he says that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly towards those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. So he tells them not to be a busybody or a gossip, uh, but their witness to unbelievers consists of them living a quiet life, peaceful Uh, in brotherly love with one another, uh, working, supporting themselves. Uh, And and so we think even about Peter's first letter when he told wives who had unbelieving husbands that if you lead a quiet, peaceable life, that can be a testimony to your unbelieving husband that may result in his salvation. And so Paul says, this is already your testimony to the surrounding region is your brotherly love for one another. So continue in that and continue to live this exemplary life, minding your own business uh, and working out the gospel in your sanctification. And this will be your testimony to the watching world. Then in verse 13, uh, he, he starts verse 13 with this word, but. And so he's kind of changing subjects, but he says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. That the church is being persecuted for their faith and for their belief in Christ. And it's quite possible that some of them may have been martyred at this point. And so the church in Thessalonica may be thinking, well, what about those who have been killed? What about those believers who have died because of this persecution? What about them? Are, are they lost? What, what is their situation? And so uh, he addresses that. And he says, even though you've suffered this loss, uh, you can suffer this, you can continue to suffer this loss with hope. Uh, and he says in verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So Christ's resurrection, which he had alluded to earlier at the end of chapter 1, uh, is the first fruits of the resurrection. And if we believe that Christ died and rose again, Even so, uh, those who have died in Christ, whether it's from persecution, whether it's from uh, age or sickness or whatever it might be, uh, they will live again because they have died in Christ and he will bring them with him when he returns. And so Christ's resurrection is an assurance to all believers of our own resurrection. 
And so he begins to speak about uh, the return of Christ and the fact that those who are dead in Christ will be resurrected first and those who are alive uh, will then be resurrected in a sense. We'll be caught up together with him, we'll be glorified, we'll receive our new glorified body. So in a sense, we'll experience a resurrection if we're alive uh, at that time when Christ returns. Uh, this is a passage uh, here in First Thessalonians that has been uh, used and abused quite a bit throughout the history of the church uh, as he speaks about this. He says in verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. So that phrase right there, caught up together, uh, is the phrase from which we get our word rapture. Uh, now the word in Greek uh, doesn't even look like that. It's harpazo, uh, but it means to seize uh, and so when the Latin Vulgate was translated from the Greek into Latin, uh, the Latin word that was used was rapimur, uh, which means to snatch or to carry off plunder. Uh, and that was, of course, older Latin. Well, in medieval Latin, that became raptura, uh, which meant to seize or to kidnap. Uh, and then in middle, medieval French, it became the word rapture. And so that's where our word rapture comes from as uh, multiple steps removed from this Greek word that means to be caught up uh, to meet Christ in the air. But this idea of being caught up uh, is not some sort of secret event. If we look at verse 16, the Lord is descending with a shout, the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God. This is the day of the Lord that the prophets spoke about in the Old Testament. And we're to caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Trimper Logman in his uh, commentary says, the picture is that of the Lord coming to earth as the cloud riding warrior, like, the, like these who welcome the arrival of a deliverer to a city held under siege, the saints are taken up not to depart to heaven, but to meet him in the air and escort him on his victorious march to earth. Uh, and so that's the, the picture that's being given here, is that Christ uh, is coming on that day of the Lord in judgment, in victory, uh, and the, the saints will be resurrected and caught up to meet him and escort him to the earth as he comes uh, in victory. Our goal he says in verse 17, uh, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So that's, that's the end result. That the goal is not uh, to escape earth. Uh, the goal is to be with Christ, uh, to be where he is. Uh, and so then in verse 18, he says that we are to comfort one another with these words. So uh, whether it's because we have endured persecution uh, and, and some Christians may be dying, or whether it's just a natural course of life uh, that we face death, uh, we are to comfort one another with the fact that when Christ returns, those who know Christ, those who were, fell asleep in Christ, as he says, uh, will be resurrected or glorified uh, and reunited with the Lord physically at that point. And then in chapter 5, he continues to speak uh, about this event, about the day of the Lord. And he tells them that uh, Christ's return is the day of the Lord. Uh, and he says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly from the day that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. So 
he's equating the day of the Lord with Christ's return. And he says that it comes like a thief in the night. It's unexpected. It's unpredictable. But is it a thief in the night for Christians or for non-Christians? Because he says in verse 3, for when they say peace and safety, well, who is they? When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. So it's unbelievers who will experience destruction on the day of the Lord uh, who are not expecting this and it suddenly comes upon them as a thief in the night or uh, in verse 3 the metaphor he uses as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. So uh, Christians uh, can be prepared and alert for the return of Christ. Uh, We are sons of light, he says in verse 5, not of the night or of darkness. So we should be alert and expecting uh, the return of Christ. In verses 8 through 11, he then speaks once more of uh, this trio uh, of words that he uses, faith, love, and hope. Uh, And in verse 9, particularly, he says, uh, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. So this coming day of the Lord is a day of judgment for the nations, but it's a day of hope for believers. It's not a day that we should dread, but that we should look forward to with hope and anticipation. The rest of the the chapter then, uh, he tells us that we are to live at peace with one another. He says this in verse 13 and again uh, talks about peace in verse 23. Uh, So that kind of bookends this little section right here from 12 through 24 uh, where he's telling us to live at peace with one another. And again, he tells us that God's will for us is our sanctification, that we should learn to die to self and to live at peace with one another. Uh, And and it's interesting in this passage uh, through the end of the chapter, he asked them to pray for himself and as he prays for them. But he uses the word brethren five times in this little section. And so the idea is that they are the family of God and should be living at peace with one another uh, and prepared for Christ's return. In fact, this word brethren might be the key word in this entire book. He uses it 19 times in five chapters as he speaks about the brethren in the church at Thessalonica with this idea that we are a family and so we can endure suffering and we can do so with hope of Christ's return because we have each other, because we have the church itself and we're not doing this alone. So Paul's written this letter uh, to the the church there in Thessalonica. And if we flip the page to 2 Thessalonians, which is a very short uh, book, uh, we'll see that Paul writes them another letter. And like I said, this one was likely written just a few months uh, after the first one. And it's to clear up uh, a misunderstanding that may have arisen from the first letter uh, and to convince them that this second coming of Christ is a future reality and has not already happened. There are false teachers among them who are telling them, you missed it. He already came back. Uh, and you weren't even aware of it. And so Paul is telling them, no, uh, his coming has not yet happened. And so uh, he'll talk about some signs of the end uh, by which we can know that his coming has not yet occurred. So again, in chapter 1, we have the opening and a prayer of thanksgiving. Uh, 
uh, again, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Uh, and so he, he says in verse 3 uh, that we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. So he continues uh, to be thankful for their faith and for their love that they have for one another uh, that this church is experiencing. He boasts in verse 4 of how well they have endured their suffering. And in verse 5 he says that this is an evidence that they are worthy of the kingdom of God, uh, this suffering that they have endured so well. Uh, In verse 6 through 9, he then begins to speak about the return of Christ, and he says that at Christ's return, uh, those who have persecuted the church will be judged by Christ. So again, this idea of the day of the Lord that is judgment for the nations and vindication for his people. Uh, And then he says that when that occurs, uh, in verse 10, when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. So those who don't believe, those who persecute the church, uh, will be judged at Christ's return, but the faithful, uh, will, Christ will be glorified among his saints uh, on that day of his return. In chapter 2, he then begins to speak about this false teaching that has arisen there in Thessalonica to warn them against it uh, and encourage them to stand fast. He tells them not to be deceived, uh, that some may be teaching that Christ has already returned. But he, he, So he says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. So he tells them, you, you may even receive letters claiming to be from us, uh, but don't believe that the day of Christ has already occurred because there are signs of the end that have to happen first, uh, the falling away and the son of perdition uh, being revealed. And until those two things happen, we know that Christ has not returned. Uh, Now, he continues to speak about this son of perdition who will be revealed in verse 4, and he says that he opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, this verse uh, is a footnote reference in our confession in uh, chapter 26 of the church in paragraph 4, speaking of the Pope in, of Rome, uh, the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church, and, and saying that he is uh, that Antichrist. Uh, and so we have to be careful when we read that because that's chapter 26, which is of the church. It's about ecclesiology, not eschatology. So we shouldn't read eschatology into a chapter about ecclesiology. Uh, and so James Renahan in his commentary on the confession says that unlike Roman interpretations among the Protestants, Antichrist was not typically identified as an individual, but as a designation for a system dominated by men. And then he goes on to talk about uh, this idea that the Pope actually does encapsulate many of these things, uh, all of them that are spoken of concerning uh, this man of perdition. He opposes and exalts himself uh, above Scripture, above the Word of God, 
calls himself an alternate Christ or Christ vice regent on earth, claims for himself authority in the church that belongs only to Christ. But Renahan is careful to warn us that we should not read modern eschatology back into something that was written in the 1600s uh, when that's not what they believed. Uh, they weren't speaking about the Pope in that way. They were talking about ecclesiology, not eschatology. But here in this chapter, uh, Paul is talking to them about eschatology, about the return of Christ, and warning them that uh, some will try and deceive them and tell them that Christ has already returned. But in verses 5 through 12, he says that can't happen uh, because this son of perdition, the lawless one, has not yet been revealed. Uh, but he does say in verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Uh, so even though uh, this man of perdition or this lawless one has not yet been revealed, uh, the spirit of Antichrist is at work in the world. Uh, Satan is opposing the church. That's why they're suffering persecution uh, from non-believers. And so uh, just as the spirit of Christ is at work in the world, so the spirit of Satan is at work in the world to oppose the church. But he tells them uh, in verses 13 and 14 that they are chosen by God, called by God for salvation and for glory. Uh, so no, they didn't miss it. Christ didn't return uh, to claim his church, to resurrect believers, to grant those who were still alive their glorified bodies and somehow the saints in Thessalonica missed it. That's not what happened. They were chosen by God uh, to be sanctified and to be glorified in Christ. Uh, he, he then says in verse 15, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. And so he, he tells them not to be deceived, but to keep the faith uh, and to hold fast to those uh, doctrines which he had taught them. And then in verses 16 and 17, he tells them that we should find comfort uh, in the hope of Christ's return and that it would strengthen us uh, for every good word and work uh, which he has appointed for us to do. So then in verse 3, he talks, uh, chapter 3, he talks about uh, living orderly lives while we wait for the return of Christ. Uh, that we should, in verse 1, pray for uh, the spread of the gospel and the glory of Christ. And I, I love this verse. He says, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified, just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. So even Paul is suffering uh, the same sorts of persecutions and afflictions that they are, so he asked that they would pray uh, that the word of God would spread swiftly and be glorified uh, in the world, and that Paul himself even would be delivered. Uh, he wants the missionary efforts to be unhindered. Uh, in verses 3 through 5, he then uh, says that God is faithful and will ultimately deliver his people. Uh, and so he prays and says, Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. So as they endure, uh, he wants them to continue to love Christ and to endure patiently uh, the suffering that they have to endure. But then he begins to warn them uh, in verse 6 through 9 uh, to follow his example and not the example of the false teachers. Uh, he says, but we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Well, what does it mean to walk disorderly? Well, he tells us in verse 11, for we hear that there are some 
who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Uh, And so many commentators uh, are of the opinion that what has probably happened is this false teaching concerning the return of Christ uh, has led people to think Christ has already returned, the kingdom is being ushered in, that means we can stop working now, right? Because Christ has returned. The kingdom is being established. Uh, we're done. The work is done. But that's just false. I mean, Adam had work in the garden before the fall. Uh, so even if you thought that Christ had returned, that wouldn't mean that work had been completed. But Paul has told them, no, Christ has not yet returned. Uh, so it's disorderly to uh, set aside the affairs of this world uh, and think that you don't have to work any longer because somehow Christ has returned spiritually or something of that nature. Uh, so he says that they are to follow his example and to work. Uh, and he says in, in verse 12 then uh, that now those who are, are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. So this is very similar to what he had told them in the previous letter, uh, to work, live quiet lives, provide for yourself. Uh, and then he says uh, in verse 13, but as for you, Brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Uh, So he's telling them, don't grow weary uh, in waiting for Christ's return. Be found faithful when he comes. Uh, Don't grow weary of doing good. Uh, and, and to exhort those uh, who have believed this false doctrine and have maybe stopped working uh, and are depending on the benevolence of the church to support them because they're expecting things to happen and the kingdom to be established. Uh, he says, no, don't do that. Exhort them to work, to live peaceable lives, and, and to be found worthy, blameless, and holy when Christ returns. And then he says in verse 16, part of his benediction, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. Now if you've noticed, he's used the word brethren multiple times in the second letter. And again, this theme of peace. And he says, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. He is likely picking up language here from Isaiah chapter 26 and 27, which are just absolutely beautiful. Uh, If you were to read those, I would encourage you to read Isaiah 26 and 27 later when you have time, but listen to a few select verses. Isaiah 26, 12, Lord, you will establish peace for us, for you have also done all our works in us. And then in verse 15, you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have expanded all the borders of the land. Well, that's what the gospel is doing. It's expanding throughout the entire world at this time. And then in verse 19, your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust. For your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. So even there in Isaiah, Isaiah is predicting the resurrection of the dead. And then in chapter 27, uh, verses 5 and 6, he says, Let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. Those who come, he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Uh, So Paul is picking up on that language. The Lord of peace will grant you peace in every way. Uh, The Lord be with you. The church has peace with God through Christ. 
We have peace with one another uh, in our sanctification as we pursue that, and we have a hope of peace to come uh, when the kingdom is finally consummated. And then Paul authenticates the letter, uh, saying that he has signed it uh, with his own hand, and so likely this is a reference back to chapter 2, verse 2, where he talked about them potentially receiving letters purporting to be from him and teaching something else. Uh, And so we have the first fruits of the kingdom, uh, new life in Christ, peace with God and with one another in the church, but we await the consummation of all things on the day of the Lord when Christ returns, when we will have new physical bodies resurrected and glorified like Christ's and finally have peace on earth with all men. Uh, And so that is what Paul is uh, seeking to instruct this young church in Thessalonica to encourage them to remain steadfast in the faith with this hope of glory to come. Let's pray.